Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Mark, chapter 7, verses 31 through chapter 8, verse 26, and can be found starting on page 713 of most of your pew Bibles. Mark chapter 7, starting from verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh to, uh, and said to him, Ephaphtha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called the disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have had nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on their ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks to them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present. And having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. 
Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't go into the village. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks, Terry. So I'm a big fan of Calvin and Hobbes. For those of you guys who don't know who Calvin and Hobbes is, it's a comic strip that was published about 25, 30 years ago, around the time I was in high school. And it's a, it's a comic strip that traces the life of Calvin, this kid, this precocious kid who has this hyperactive imagination. His, and his adventures with this toy stuffed tiger, Hobbes, who he imagines is a real person. And it traces Calvin's adventures as Calvin tries to make sense of the world around him, as Calvin tries to understand how the world around him works. So I, I'm a big fan of Calvin Hobbes, and I was super excited, uh, some, I forget, 10 years ago, give or take, when Bill Watterson finally released the three-volume set of Calvin Hobbes, and so my wife let me buy it uh, as a Christmas gift for myself. And I was even more excited when, more recently, a couple of years ago, my sons found the three-volume set, or maybe I just kind of pushed it on them, and they started reading it, and they started really enjoying it too. And one of the strips that I always remember is one where, sorry, I can't put it up for copyright reasons, but is one where Calvin sits there at the beginning of the first panel and says, where's my jacket? And then he goes and tries to look everywhere for his jacket. He looks under the bed, on the stairs, on his desk, in the kitchen, and he just can't find his jacket. Until he gets to, we get to the last frame, where he stands there and says, here it is. Who put it in the stupid closet? And this happens to me all the time. You know, you can ask my wife. I'm constantly misplacing things. I misplace my keys. I misplace my Bible. I misplace my, you know, papers for for school. I misplace my jacket, too. And I look everywhere for it, you know, on my nightstand, in the area where I read, in the dining table, only to realize that what I'm looking for was right in front of my nose all the time. This one time I was looking for my sunglasses only to find out that my sunglasses were on top of my head. And so in our passage today, the disciples are in a similar type of situation. The disciples have been spending time with Jesus. They've been living with Jesus. And during their time with Jesus, they've been learning about who Jesus is. They've been learning about the authority that Jesus has when he teaches, when he does miracles. They've been learning about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to have faith in Jesus. Just last week, uh, Pastor Jeff Huang shared with us about how the disciples were learning about how following Jesus doesn't simply consist of adhering to, strictly to human rituals or human traditions, but following Jesus requires transformation of the heart, transformation of the heart that produces obedience to God's word, a transformation from the inside, not from the outside. And so the disciples have been hanging around Jesus this whole time, and yet they still don't get it. I mean, they've been around Jesus 24-7, and they still don't understand who he is, that he's the Messiah. You can almost sense this 
sense of frustration in Jesus' words in our passage today in chapter 8, verse 21, when Jesus says, do you still not understand? Why don't the disciples get it? And if the disciples have been spending time 24-7 with Jesus don't get it, what hope is there for us who don't live, you know, on a daily basis with Jesus physically present with us all the time? What hope does our passage give us to understand? Well, our passage today isn't a Markin sandwich like we've seen a couple times already in Mark, but it does have kind of a sandwich-like structure. Let's see if uh, this is on and off and see if I can get it to work. All right, it doesn't seem to be working. Uh, if you can go to the next slide and just advance here and there. So it, it does have a sandwich-like structure. It begins and ends with the healing of a, the, a deaf man and the healing of a blind man. So we, we're, we have the bread, which is Jesus healing people. And in the middle, oh, I think it is working now. In the middle, we have the feeding of the 4,000, the meat of the sandwich. Now what does, you, know, you might say, what does the feeding of the 4,000 have to do with Jesus healing a blind and mute man, or sorry, a, a, a deaf and mute man and a blind man? Well, we'll see in our passage that these passages are related to one another in this sandwich structure. And we'll see that Jesus opens our spiritual eyes and ears, and we have to remember what we see. So we'll first start with the meat of the sandwich, the feeding of the 4,000. Now, as we read the passage today, some of you guys might have felt a sense of deja vu, right? I mean, I think it was just two weeks ago that Pastor David preached on the feeding of the 5,000. And there's a lot of similarity between the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000, to the point where some scholars think that Mark just repeated the same story twice for rhetorical emphasis. But there's enough difference between the two stories to argue that they really were distinct events. I mean, the numbers were different, uh, the circumstances were different in terms of how long the people had been sitting there, uh, who raised the issue of, you know, the need for food was different between the two stories. And yet, even if they were distinct events, it still asks, we can still ask the question, why did Mark include both of these stories in his gospel and so close to each other? I mean, Mark must have had tons of stories to draw from. We learn at the end of the book of John that if everything that was written about Jesus was written down, the whole world might not even be able to fill all, be, uh, be able to fit all the books. So why did Mark choose two stories that were so similar to one another? Well, one reason might be for might be for the emphasis of the theme that Mark is trying to emphasize, this theme of this idea of miraculously producing bread. Mark might be trying to make some kind of connection between this idea of who Jesus is with other places in the Bible where we see miraculous producing of bread. Where can you think of a time in the Bible where bread miraculously appears by God? You've got to think back, way back, to Exodus, Exodus chapter 16, where we saw Israel having just been delivered from Egypt, having just crossed the Red Sea, and Israel starts to complain that they're hungry. We've talked about this before uh, in, in other sermons. And so what does God do? God has mercy on them, and God gives them 
manna. God gives them miraculously every single day bread that appears from nowhere that they can gather so they can eat. And so when we look at this passage of this emphasis on, you know, feeding with bread, we can see that perhaps Mark is making this connection between Jesus and the Exodus. Perhaps Mark is making a connection that Jesus is coming to bring deliverance just as Israel was delivered from Egypt. Perhaps Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one who delivers. But despite these connections with bread, and despite everything that Jesus has done, like we said before, the Pharisees and the disciples just don't get it, right? We see right after the feeding of the 4,000, the Pharisees going to Jesus. And the, what do the Pharisees do? They ask Jesus for a sign from heaven. Now, at some level, you know, this request kind of makes sense, right? The Pharisees are responsible for making sure that Israel's faithful to God, to faithful to God's law. And they don't want Israel to be led astray by a false prophet. So it makes sense that they would ask Jesus to prove who he is, to prove that Jesus is really sent from God. But then you look at the context. The request happens right after Jesus does do a sign, right? The request happens right after Jesus feeds the 4,000, not to count all the bazillion other things that Jesus has done, which, is, which have been recorded. You know, the miracles, you know, all, the thing, all the people he's healed, the authority of his teaching. And so, given all that, would one more sign really make a difference to what the Pharisees think of Jesus? The Pharisees' hearts are hardened, and Jesus knows this. And so Jesus responds and says, no, I'm not going to give you a sign, because he knows that the Pharisees are there not looking for God's truth. The Pharisees are there seeking to undermine who Jesus is, and so Jesus doesn't give the Pharisees a sign. But it's not just the Pharisees, right? It's not just the people that, who are set up as who we know are kind of the enemies of Jesus. It's the disciples, too. Because right after this story, Jesus gets on a boat with the disciples, and he says to the disciples, be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Jesus is speaking figuratively here, right? He's not saying literally beware of, you know, the yeast that the Pharisees used to bake bread. He's talking about the Pharisees' worldview, the Pharisees' teaching, and how that, the Pharisees' understanding. He's talking figuratively, just like he used parables before. But the disciples interpret Jesus literally. They're thinking, you know, what does this mean? Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of, that of Herod. Oh, I know. Jesus must be really upset that we only brought one loaf of bread with us. They just don't get it. I mean, they just saw Jesus feed the 4,000, right? Clearly they know that to Jesus, bread's not an issue. They just don't get it. And so Jesus goes on and, and says to them, oops, uh, Jesus goes on and says to them, why are, you, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? And then he quotes, probably quotes Jeremiah 21.5, or 5.21 in saying, 
Do you have eyes but fail to see, and ears but fail to hear, and don't you remember? Jesus, in quoting Jeremiah, alludes back to something similar that he said back in Mark chapter 4. If you remember back in Mark chapter 4, Jesus was giving all these parables about the kingdom of heaven, and the disciples asked him, why do you speak in parables? Why do you speak figuratively? And back then, Jesus said, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might, be turn, they might turn and be forgiven. And there, Jesus was quoting Isaiah 6. So the interesting thing is, it's not just the Pharisees who don't get it, right? It's not just those on the outside who don't get it. The disciples, who in theory are on the inside, they're Jesus' inner circle of 12 people. They're the ones to whom the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given. Jesus tells them that they're just like the Pharisees, that they're, they also fail to see, that they also have ears, but fail to hear. They're like Lois Lang, you know, working with Clark Kent all the time, and not being able to tell that he's Superman because somehow glasses completely disguise who you are. Or they're like the Karate Kid, you know, being taught by Mr. Miyagi, not really understanding what exactly it is that they're being taught. You know, wax on, wax off, but I'm just washing a car. The disciples don't get it. But you know, who are we to judge the disciples? So often, we don't get it either. We don't recognize who Jesus is. We don't recognize Jesus' presence with us. We don't recognize Jesus' sovereignty, that all things have been put under his feet. How often do we forget the immense riches that we have in Christ Jesus during our daily life? when it comes to the stresses of our work, stresses of family, stresses of studies, stresses of health, we forget who Jesus is. We also are spiritually blind and deaf. We also can't remember. And so what we see in Mark is, uh, is this clear statement that, you know, it's not just the Pharisees, it's the people who are closest to Jesus who also don't get it. And we have to be convicted and examine our own hearts to see that, we, you know, it's, that it's, not just the, it's not just the Pharisees, not just the disciples. It's also us who don't understand who Jesus is all the time. So what hope do we have? Well, there is hope because there's hope because of who Jesus is. And we'll see that as we continue examining our passage that Jesus opens our spiritual eyes and ears. We'll go to the bread of our passage, the healings at the beginning and the end. And you know, you might say, it seems kind of arbitrary that we chose the, the boundaries of our passage today such that it, you know, it just so happens to begin and end with a healing. But if we look at the passage, which you can see behind me, there are a lot of parallels between these two healings that seem to indicate that Mark intentionally wanted to have these two read in conjunction with one another, that there's, there should be this kind of sandwich view of the passage. In both passages, people brought someone to Jesus, 
In both passages, people begged Jesus, urged Jesus to heal this person. In both passages, Jesus took the person away from the crowds, either outside the village or or away from where everyone else was. And in both passages, Jesus spits on the person in some way and touches the person to heal them. And you can see from the highlighting where all these happen in the passage. There's a lot of parallels between these two healings. And as we look at these parallels, we also see how these healings are in contrast with what the disciples are accused of, right? The disciples are accused of not seeing, of not hearing. And what do, who does Jesus heal? He heals a deaf man and a blind man. Mark is giving us hope that despite our blindness, Jesus is able to open our eyes and our ears. And this theme of healing the deaf and the blind and the mute is something that we see uh, paralleled in Isaiah 35. In Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6, we read, "Then Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. And it's not just the idea of healing blind, mute, and deaf uh, that that parallels uh, Isaiah 35. We also see parallels from the very beginning of our passage. If you look at the very first verse of our passage, it says that Jesus goes from Tyre to the Decapolis. And how does he do that? He goes through Sidon. Why does Jesus do that? It's a very weird way of going about things, right? It'd be like saying, hey, I'm going to go to Springfield to Six Flags. Let's drive through Portsmouth, New Hampshire to get to Six Flags. It's a weird path. But when we look at Isaiah 35, we get some clues. The first couple of verses of Isaiah 35 say, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. In Isaiah 35, we see this idea of transformation, this idea of transformation from desert and wilderness into flourishing. And this description of transformation is described as, you know, the forests and, and, the, and all the flowers from Lebanon coming into and blossoming in the, in the desert of Israel. And where it was it that Jesus went? If we go back, Tyre and Sidon just so happened to be in Lebanon. And so in our passage, we see the glory of Lebanon used as a metaphor for the glory of the Lord. We see the splendor of Mount Carmel and the plains of Sharon, which are in Lebanon, describing the splendor of our God. And so in Isaiah 35, we see this idea of transformation, that when God comes to save, he's going to transform, and the transformation is going to look like this picture of a desert into this picture of flowers. This transformation is going to look like people who are deaf and mute and blind suddenly being able to hear, speak, and see. And if we continue to to the end of Isaiah chapter 35, we read, And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. 
The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No, no lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. When God comes to save, when the Messiah comes, he's going to bring his people on the way of holiness. He's going to bring his people on the way of holiness into Zion, the city of God, into a place where there will be eternal gladness and joy, into a place where this gladness and joy overcomes any sorrow or sighing that we have, such that that sorrow and sighing disappears. He's going to bring us on this journey Echoing again back to the Exodus. Just as Israel was brought out of Egypt into the promised land, the Messiah is going to come and bring us into the city of God. He's got, Jesus has come and he's brought us figuratively through the Red Sea into the promised land. Jesus opens our spiritual eyes and ears to who he is as he seeks to redeem us, as he, bring, as he saves us, and brings us into eternity. Jesus, as our passage says after he heals the, the, the mute man, Jesus has done everything well. He's made everything good. He's recreating everything, just like back in Genesis, when God saw that everything he made was good. So we've seen how we're blind we're, we, we're spiritually blind and deaf. And we've seen how Jesus has the ability to open our spiritual eyes and ears. But what does this mean for us practically? What does this mean for us day to day? Well, even though we need Jesus to open our spiritual eyes and ears, we still have a role to play in using those open spiritual eyes and ears. We need to grow more aware of the world around us to grow more in tune with what God is doing around us. And like many things, this is a process. Take a look at how Jesus healed the blind man. When Jesus first spits and touches the blind man, what happens? He asks the blind man, what do you see? And what does the blind man say? I'm healed. I see everything perfectly well. No. The blind man says, I see but I see people walking around looking like trees. His, his vision is a little clouded. It's like, I don't know if you've ever watched a 3D movie and taken off your glasses. It's like, it's like not, you know, see, you can kind of make out shapes, but you can't quite make out what's going on. Or like many years ago, there was a movie called Memento talking about a, a, a guy who could only remember things short term and the movie went backwards in time. And throughout the whole movie, you had no idea what was going on. And so this, this guy can kind of make out shapes, he can kind of make out isolated things, but he has no idea what big picture vision looks like. And in the same way, our vision, when Jesus opens our spiritual eyes, it's, it's a process, right? We don't instantaneously understand the, all the secrets of the kingdom of God, all the mysteries of who God is and what he's doing in salvation history. It's a process and one that we continue to grow in in our lives as we live on earth, one in which will only be fully realized when we're in heaven. And so, after the man says, I see trees, 
Jesus touches him a second time, and the man then can fully see everything clearly. The healing of the blind man kind of points to this idea that many of you have heard of, of this already but not yet situation, right? We, we have had our eyes open spiritually, but we don't completely see everything clearly. But there is a call that we have to continue to walk faithfully, to continue to seek after, to, to use the eyes that have been opened to try to see more clearly by God's grace, to be attuned to what God is doing around us, to be aware of God's presence in our lives. And this is hard. You know, I remember I was sharing with one of my uh, men's groups that, you know, I was convicted, I was feeling particularly convicted one day. And I was like, okay, I'm going to try to go through today and try to go through each interaction I have with people, trying to remember that God is present with me. You know, go through every task that I have for that day. And about 30 minutes to an hour into that day, I realized that I had already failed, that I had already forgotten that God was with me, that I was already going about doing something and, and going about it myself without realizing God's presence with me. And how often do we forget about God's presence when, it, when we face difficult situations like cancellation of airplane flight or arguments with family members or the stress of needing to you know, meet a deadline either at school or at work? In those situations of high stress, are we aware of the presence of God? Are we aware of God's sovereignty over our lives and his call to have our eyes opened, to be seeing what God is doing in our interactions with people, in the ways in which he is working through us and in us. And it's hard. Our hearts are hardened, just like the disciples. Our necks are stiff, you know, Israel is called stiff-necked back in Exodus, because they were like animals that couldn't have their heads turned as they were going down a bad path. It's hard, and yet God calls us to grow in our spiritual perception and to remember what he's done. And so we've seen that we're spiritually blind and deaf, that Jesus can open our spiritual eyes and ears, and that we do need to grow in our spiritual perception We need to become aware of what God's doing to use those eyes that Jesus has given us and to remember. So as we close today, I'll leave you with this encouragement. As we think about how we remember, for those of you who don't make this a regular habit, take time each day to reflect and to remember and to pray. Maybe it's in the morning as you reflect on what your busy day looks like to think about how it is that God might be working in your busy day. You know, there's a story of Martin Luther who said, my, my, you know, my day is so busy, I need to spend three hours praying before it starts. Maybe it's at the end of the day to reflect on what's happened, to reflect on what God has done during that day, how God was working in your life. Maybe it's as you're standing in line, you know, in this information age, You know, when we're bored, it's so easy just to pull out your phone and, you know, start chatting or playing a game or something or surfing the web. Maybe it's while you're waiting where you have the potential to be bored. Instead of pulling out your phone, take that time to reflect on what God is doing around you. Take that time to pray 
that God would open your spiritual eyes and ears, that God would enable you to see the world more clearly, that God would open your eyes to the, to the reality of who Jesus is and what he's doing. Because Jesus is the one who it does open our spiritual eyes and ears. And so we need to use them and remember. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you because you have blessed us so richly in Christ. You have blessed us with immense riches. You have blessed us with the power, the same power which raised Jesus from the dead as we live our lives, as we seek to um, walk through the different struggles that we face. And you've blessed us so that when we struggle, you've given us eyes to remember who you are and your sovereignty, that you have promised us that you are working a good in us and around us that we can't understand, but that we can trust in. That we can trust in your provision to give us what we need to do what you have called us to do each and every day. We thank you for that, Lord. In your precious son's name we pray.